0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden from the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University in Cape Town, South Africa, who today is joining us on the line from Johannesburg. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon. And I'm thrilled to have back on the show after a brief uh, uh, hiatus, uh, Anne Sherman, who you may know from our terribly successful, tremendously successful Facebook page at Facebook.com slash China Africa Project. We're so proud to have crossed the 17,000 member mark uh, due in part, a large part to Anne's work. Anne is in Beijing, so we, uh, we're thrilled to have you on the line from China.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, normally what we do on the show, is, as our regular listeners know, is we usually tackle kind of three of the big issues of the week. Uh, break them down, say a few things and give our insights and then say goodbye. Well, there's one topic that's really kind of pushed this way to the headlines that we really wanted to devote a, a special attention to and this is the issue of Huawei. And in part it's, it's an issue that is so important for Africa. It's an issue that is also extremely important for China and now in the United States this global technology firm has really come to the center of the headlines thanks in part to uh, two issues that came up last week. One was a report on 60 Minutes which is the Very the very popular news television news magazine program, and uh, they did a feature on Huawei, and also in that feature they profiled the decision of the congressional House Congressional Intelligence Committee decision that really rejected any United States presence for Huawei, and so to give some understanding of both the United States point of view on this as well as where and the background of Huawei. And then what we'll do is we'll connect that with Africa. We're just so honored to have a very prominent guest, Reed Hunt, and that name may sound familiar to you. Uh, Mr. Hunt was uh, the chairman of the Federal communications, uh, Federal communications Commission from 1993 to 1997. And for those of you not familiar with uh, American politics, that's basically the top kind of policy position for for media and communications in the United States government, and then since then um uh, Reed Hunt has also gone on to uh, a very prominent business career with McKinsey and Blackstone and also serving on the board of Intel and has extensive experience in China. Reed Hunt, thank you so much for joining us.
2: My pleasure.
0: Well, so let's get started. Let's let's back up a little bit and and talk a, about kind of who Huawei is and why is this issue so important today? Uh, in the news as it relates to the United States and China, and then we'll kind of connect it to Africa in a moment. So tell us a little bit about Huawei and why you think this issue is coming to the fore in the United States.
2: Well, I can tell you a little bit about Huawei, but uh, much of Huawei is a mystery wrapped in the enigma that is China. Uh, Huawei, uh, to uh, the perspective of the West, is a a very low-cost supplier of Uh, high-tech equipment for communications networks. Uh, What everyone in the West uh, always wonders about is whether Huawei is also uh, uh, to some degree owned and controlled by the uh, uh, government in China and maybe even the uh, PLA, the People's Liberation Army. I say people wonder about it. They don't really know.
0: Well, you know, and of course, this is what was interesting about the House Intelligence Committee report that came out last week was there is no, of course, no direct evidence that links uh, Huawei to the uh, to the PLA. Uh, of course, the, 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 the chairman of Huawei was an officer in the PLA many, many years ago. But, you know, Reid Hunt, th- this is really an interesting kind of dichotomy here because if you look at a lot of American defense contractors and a lot of American technology companies – um, there's a lot of back and forth between the U.S. military and these technology companies. Uh, it's not unusual to have senior um, retired American military officers sitting, you know, at very, very high positions, if not at the, the leadership position. But yet we don't make the assumption, in the you know, that, that these are somehow, you know, tools of the United States government. Why do you think that without any direct evidence – Without any, you know, a full understanding of how these companies work, people in the United States, particularly in policy positions, are coming to such bold conclusions.
2: Well, uh, uh, fact number one is that a very, very large percentage of the Chinese economy consists of state-owned enterprises. Uh, I suppose that people can disagree about the percentage, but it's probably somewhere between 40% and 60% of the entire economy Consists of state-owned enterprises. Uh, number two, according to many Western reports, the top seventy members of the Politburo uh, uh, have, uh, counting everyone in their families, uh, an average net worth somewhere between five hundred million dollars and a billion dollars. Uh, and number three, there are there's much evidence of individuals. Uh, who are high in the Politburo having family members who are prominent in state-owned enterprises. So the role of uh, state-owned enterprises and the role of people in the Politburo uh, having some direct or indirect stake in these enterprises is quite a bit different than in the West. Well, of course, everything I've just said is part of the uh, communist uh, lineage and, and uh, uh, history of modern China. So it's not really surprising, but it does give rise to concerns about Huawei that, uh, for example, uh, will not be pertinent to its competitor Cisco or its competitor Juniper, naming two uh, companies in Silicon Valley uh as far as I know, in both those companies, there's no one in uh, the ranks of high officers, whoever was in the U.S. military. There's never been uh, any indication that these uh, companies have any background other than private sector, venture capital, entrepreneurial endeavor. I'm not uh, making a value statement. I haven't said uh, that one is good and one is bad. I've just tried to explain why the histories uh, behind Huawei's American competitors and Huawei are quite a bit different.
0: Sure. Uh, It should be noted, of course, that Huawei is is actually not a state-owned company. It's employee-owned, and it does not behave in the same way as the state-owned companies where the Communist Party switches out the leadership every two to three years. The chairman of Huawei has been in that position for, for, for many years. So just just a little side anecdote. Uh, Kobus, let me let me turn to Wait you. A minute. you oh. But
2: you just said something that is actually uh, not really fully resolved, and that is uh, that there's no connection between that company and the government uh, that's meaningful. That's the issue. That's the exact issue. That
0: we don't know and what the I'm level is. And I am trying to tell
2: you that... In the United States, there's a lot of doubt about that.
0: Sure, Uh,
2: I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. I'm saying there's a lot of doubt about it. I'll give you an example. Fifteen years ago, when I met with a high-ranking official in the uh, Chinese government, he told me that the People's Liberation Army would participate in the build-out of the communications networks. I didn't make that up. I didn't uh, read it somewhere. He told it to me. That doesn't mean that it's right or wrong. It's just different.
0: Sure. Yeah, no, uh, you, you know, Kobus, the point of view from Africa must be very, very different, obviously. Huawei there is known as the company that is investing billions of dollars to, to wire up the continent, uh, I remember from my time when I lived in, in the DRC that it was using a Huawei modem connected to a Huawei router connected to a Huawei cell phone that was actually connected to a Huawei cell phone antenna that they'd built out the entire wireless infrastructure in Kinshasa. Uh, so for for many Africans, Huawei isn't a threat. It's, a, it's It's a company that's branded as actually connecting the continent for the very first time to the digital networks. What's the view from, from your point of view and from, from South Africa looking at this debate going on in the United States?
3: Well, I saw a very interesting, um, uh, you know, number recently um, that over the last year, Huawei's brand awareness in South Africa has jumped from four percent to twenty-one percent, mm. um, and I think part part of that is because they've started advertising and they've started establishing themselves as a brand. I think before they were kind of they were known to tech people in Africa as the the kind of people who put in network infrastructure far and wide, you know, kind of, and I mean, if, once you start making a list of, of Huawei's big network, uh, you know, projects, they cover almost in, they almost single-handedly uh, responsible for the, the tech revolution that's happening in Africa at the moment. They're putting in massive infrastructure in Ethiopia, in Angola, you know, count, you, know, you name your country and Huawei is there. Um And uh, and they slowly uh, starting to establish themselves as a a smartphone brand as well. In South Africa, particularly, they started uh, putting ads on TV um, and so on. So I think from from South Africa's perspective and Africa's perspective, I think this seems almost like a a bit of an arcane fight to have, you know, kind of because, I mean, security concerns are are valid, of course, but... um, The you know kind of the much bigger problem in Africa is is the incredible hunger um, for for communication and the incredible deficit of people. You know I I saw another number saying that 341 million people in Africa have to travel more than 50 kilometers from their homes to get access to the internet. So I mean that's a that's a crisis you know from African terms. And whatever Huawei's security situation is from you know from the African perspective, um, the fact that they're putting up these networks and laying these you know thousands of Above miles of fiber optic cables. That, I think, is the big news in Africa.
0: Yeah, so, Cobus, there's obviously a very big difference in terms of how African governments look at it from a point of view of security, and there isn't the perception of the threat that uh, that Reed Hunt was talking about coming out of the United States.
2: And, what's the... Well, now, wait, wait, now wait a minute here. What African country... Uh, what African country uh, has the technological and financial capability to... Protect its infrastructure against cyber attacks, or to protect its uh, governments against uh, spying.
3: Right, and that's I guess their yes. security now, I'm, concerns I'm sure are very different. I'm you sure know, that 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 is a concern that's actually growing in Africa, particularly in South Africa. There's recently been a lot of a lot of talk about how South African big South African banks, for example, are not uh, you know as as uh, you know cyber secure as they should be. So I think I think that that's I think exactly that those that's
2: exactly. Uh, that's exactly right in my understanding. And it's a big concern because I think the answer to my question is the technical complexity and the sheer cost of protecting critical infrastructure and protecting uh, 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 businesses against cyber attacks and against invasions of their uh, uh, private uh, information is simply staggering. Uh, everybody knows that the largest data centers in the world uh, to being built today are being built by the countries that can afford to build them. Well, if you're a small country or if you're a poor country or if you're a small and poor country, you do not have the financial wherewithal and the technical uh, skill set to be uh, worrying about cyber attacks. You have to worry about whether or not Uh, You're able to feed your people. Uh, I'm not uh, saying that uh, there's uh, anything fair about what I've just described. I'm just saying that there's a handful, only a handful of countries that have the scale to actually uh, provide security in the technologically uh, intense way uh, that is necessary if you want to guard against cyber attacks. So it's not surprising that the United States would pay more attention to communications equipment than most other countries. I don't think there's more than four or five countries in the world that have as much ability to guard uh, uh, its uh, walls uh, and as much uh, concern about doing so. By the way, another country that has the financial and technical capability to protect itself in the cyber world is China, and they are absolutely doing that. So I'm not saying that uh, there's anything wrong with it. I'm saying you can't compare a small and poor country to a uh, complex and uh, a relatively wealthy country.
0: Well, the irony is that a small and poor country might actually be more secure because it's less of a target. It has less, you know, there, there's fewer things that people want to go after in, in Zimbabwe than they do in the United States. Now, also, it should be well, noted... Well, but
2: those countries, become the, those countries can um, be the subject of predatory action. We just were talking about the banking system in South Africa. Really, what the world needs... Is a global mechanism like Interpol for catching bad guys. It needs a global mechanism for assuring cybersecurity for everybody.
0: Hard to and see no consensus coming it's out on fair that. fair, right though.
2: or proper for South Africa or India to be left out in the cold and to have it be that the U.S. and China are the only countries that can protect their critical infrastructure.
0: Well, I mean, it's Um, it's worth pointing – hold on, Kobus, one quick second. Sorry. It's worth pointing out that, you know, as a Wells Fargo customer, uh, I wasn't able to access my bank accounts last week, which now Leon Panetta, the the U.S. Defense Department, alleges were cyber attacks coming in from Iran. So even the United States, with all of its resources – uh, apparently can't defend itself, uh, which, again... No,
2: actually, the, actually that's a really, really good example of how it did defend itself, meaning your bank account is still there, you still have your money there, and it took tremendous technical uh, fortitude to be able to protect you, according to Secretary of Defense Panetta. What I'm saying is, What's fundamentally not fair is that if you want to have a bank account in South Africa or Zimbabwe or Indonesia, you really can't keep it secure. Uh, I mean, and I'm not saying that's good. It's unfair and it's bad for economic growth all around the world.
0: Sure. Let me let me bring the conversation back to Huawei a little bit. Uh, and, and I'm going to get to Anne very quickly from the point of view and the perspective from Beijing. But David Wolf from the Wolf, Wolf Group in Beijing, who is noted as one of the best Kind of scholars on and and analysts and experts on Huawei. His argument is that the United States uh, is is both is seriously naive in how they're approaching. Uh, the Huawei issue. In part, they're saying, he says, and if in fact the United, that Huawei was using, was being used as a tool by the PLA or the Chinese government, it would jeopardize its hundreds of billions of dollars in business that it does. Uh, it would ruin its entire reputation. Uh, he also points out that even Cisco's equipment and Juniper Network's, as you pointed out, most of their equipment is actually made in China, and that it should be standard practice uh, for all uh, governments and corporations to thoroughly clean all equipment that comes into their networks, not those, just those made by Huawei or others. So at the end of the day, what he's suggesting, and I'd like to get your, your opinion on this, is that the, the reason the United States is coming up with these positions is because the United States, particularly Cisco and Juniper, are falling severely behind Huawei in the global race for telecommunications dominance and supremacy, as we're seeing in places like Africa and South America. What's your kind of point of view, and what do you think the consensus view in in Washington is to that argument?
2: Well, uh, these statements that that you're repeating are seriously naive. Uh, Again, I want to assert... I don't personally know one way or another because uh, I haven't done an investigation uh, uh, of the Huawei network, and it would require a tremendous amount of technical uh, sophistication to do it. But I am saying this. It's important to step back and ask the following question. Uh, Everybody knows that as a commercial matter, the Internet grew. Uh, all through the 1990s in the United States and then spread uh, through the rest of the world. Everybody knows that, therefore, uh, companies headquartered in the United States had a leg up on the expansion of the Internet and became uh, world leaders in almost every aspect of the Internet, and two such companies were Cisco and uh, Juniper. Now ask yourself this question. Name the American Internet Company, that is just as important in china as it is in the united states that did that was able to take market share and have an impact in china to the same degree it was in the united states
0: oh well China's a closed market to, it's not uh, not open to basic and they've destroyed well, every foreign your, competitor
2: you, well you just you just put your finger on it didn't didn't you <laughs> which is if if To the degree that what you just said is accurate, to the degree that China is a closed market, you have to expect that there would be a lot of skepticism in other economies about saying, well, all right, all of these Chinese companies really ought to be competing freely in our country, even though it's not reciprocal. So that fundamental tension, that's not good for the world. That's not good in the long run for the Chinese economy. And at least the right answer, in, in my opinion, is to build on the trade agreements that when I was in the government in the 1990s, we were able to wrap around the world, and in, in particular to build on the accession of China to the World Trade Organization, which, which I and my friends in the Clinton administration fought for. We need to have a level playing field between the world's two biggest economies, the U.S. and China, and we need to have these companies in all sectors competing freely in both these markets. It would be good for both peoples. It would be good for both economies. And that's the problem that needs to be solved. And, you know, trying to focus exclusively on one particular company is an example of missing the forest for a particular tree. Okay, uh,
3: um, and read. I was wondering if I could follow up on that. Um, the British set up a system where, or Huawei in Britain set up a system where um, they their uh, the equipment is tested by uh, cybersecurity experts in Britain as a kind of a uh, you know as a gesture of good faith. Um, why do you think the the um, committee, the House Committee, didn't go for that kind of option and rather went for the option of of, of uh, you know kind of banning or, or you know kind of about on all business with Huawei.
2: That's a good question. Um, I think part, uh, the big part of the answer lies in the uh, somewhat complex nature of our uh, of our uh, government structure. The report you're talking about did not come from the executive branch. It came from Congress. It's meant to call attention in a big way to an issue. But the kind of system you're speaking about would need to be set up by the executive branch. And everybody is waiting to see who is elected president and who is in the executive branch. And uh, really, whether or not our executive branch does something like what was done in Britain is going to be a major topic for the beginning of 2013. So I'm not saying we won't do it. I'm saying we have to wait and see uh, who wins the election.
0: And I'd like to get uh, your point of view, particularly from your vantage point in Beijing. We've talked about all of the key issues related to Huawei. Obviously, the view that Reid is expressing from the United States and explaining some of the, the, the politics and the background that's there. We talked about the presence in Africa and emerging markets where Huawei has become so strong. Huawei in China is, a, is one of the kind of the most successful brands. It's a, it's a household name. Um, and so what, what, what's the discussion going on there, particularly in reaction to what we've seen in Washington in the past few weeks?
1: Sure. Well, um, obviously, the Chinese government condemned this um, report. And in all of the leading papers, um, you've seen op-eds and articles really um, calling this a double standard, saying it's, you know, an exercise in realpolitik. Um, on on Weibo, which is China's, twi- uh, China's Twitter, you see all sorts of comments that this is trade protectionism. Um, a lot about, uh, in the report, it said that they found they were worried about the Communist Party committees within Huawei, um, and so people on Weibo have been noting that IBM has a Communist Party, and that there are dozens of these parties, um, and they're kind of essential to navigating China's, you know, business environment. Um, so I guess, Reid, I was wondering what you think. Um, will will China retaliate in any way, and what do you think kind of the implications of this report are for? Uh, You know, China-U.S. relations, and especially, um, I guess, business relations.
2: Well, when I was in China uh, uh, and visiting you and others a couple of weeks ago, uh, most of the people in uh, in China uh, told me they understood that it was important to wait for the presidential election, and also important to wait for the uh, transition of power. Uh, in the Chinese government, uh, both these events will probably occur in uh, the beginning of uh, November. Uh, we've had presidential elections in our country that have had uh, where the results uh, were not decided until after the election, but probably these events will occur in the beginning of November. And so I think that uh, there will be a lowering of the political temperature after uh, these two political transitions. And I think that there'll be um, uh, weeks and months, not years, but weeks and months of uh, serious conversation about, uh, I hope, how to create the kind of uh, open market treaty based uh, mutual understanding that's best for both countries.
0: You know, you know, Huawei today is the world's second largest telecommunications company. Uh, it's on its way to become the first. Of course, it has a v- only does about $1.2, $1.3 billion of business in the United States. Do you see one day uh, the United States and, and China and Huawei kind of developing a relationship similar to what Huawei does in other parts of the world and uh, that that it has brought it so much success? Do you actually envision the day that this might be possible, or are attitudes uh, about both the Chinese and Huawei so hardened that it's hard to envision that in the, in the foreseeable future?
2: Um, so I would say, well, do you see a day where Cisco and Juniper would uh, be able to have agreements with Chinese communications companies similar to what they have in Europe and in uh, Southeast Asia and in the United States. Well, Cisco uh,
0: does a pretty robust business in China. I mean, Cisco, especially to the what Chinese do you, security what do you, service. What do you
2: think is the relative market share for Cisco in China as opposed to any other country? It's not a pretty picture. Sure. And all I'm saying is uh, in the area of telecom equipment, which is very, very, very relevant to cybersecurity, That's at the equipment level that a lot of the defenses against intrusion and malware are installed. In that area, you not only need to have a level playing field in terms of competition, but you need to have governments trusting each other's communications equipment companies to be obeying national law. That really should be the subject of a treaty. And I do think that the United States and China ought to be working on a bilateral treaty on this and other related Internet issues. That's what I what I was in China talking about two weeks ago. Uh,
0: so basically, you see this as part of a broader kind of trade relationship as opposed to something specific to Huawei and the concerns over security. Uh, that by itself, again, to, to repeat your point, that's missing the, the kind of the force through the trees, basically, if we focus too much on Huawei
2: what What you said what's best for Huawei is a more is a broader global solution
0: so let me just wrap up the conversation with uh, with some point with a perspective from Beijing again, going to Anne, and how do you foresee uh this kind of shaping out you know Reed is talking about a broader trade relationship uh you know where there's more access for uh u s companies to to engage the China market. Do you think that given the political conditions and political environment that we're seeing in China today that that's foreseeable as well?
1: I mean, I think that Reid made an excellent point that um, really everything is on hold here until the political transition um, and until that goes smoothly and um, new members, you know, 70% of the um, of the party is um, actually being replaced and it's the largest transition um, in the past three decades. So um, I think that... Um, you know, things like even the economic stimulus are all on hold here until, um, the transition occurs. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I'm, I'm really not sure, but I think that, uh, Xi Jinping does, is looked favorably upon by, um, the U S in terms of, uh, cooperation and being market friendly. And I think that, um. You know, we'll have to wait and see after the transition.
0: Koba's final thoughts from you. You know, as we, as as in Washington, they fret about this. The Ethiopians are signing a a $1.3 billion deal with Huawei and ZTE. Huawei is advancing in Angola. Huawei is advancing really across the continent. Uh, The African perspective on this story is probably to, to disregard what's happening in Washington and just to keep plowing along with Huawei to connect the continent.
3: I think so. I think that's that's probably what's going to happen in reality in Africa. Um, so many of these deals are are being signed, have just been signed. Um, they, you know, um, the African governments are are rushing ahead to try and to try and, go and get as many of their people on the tech train as possible, um, and you know, as many people as on the internet as possible. And um, I think they they're pretty much going to go for the one. For the option that's the the most affordable um, and the the most stable, um, I think you know kind of the 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 one echo that that the, the kind of flip side of all of this is um, is not is security, but not in terms of, of of be there being being spied on the government from outside of the country, but rather the the, the way that the government is spying on their own citizens, um, which I think is a, is you know Ethiopia, which has just signed a big deal with uh, with Huawei and is putting on um, massive Huawei networks. Um, is also the most notorious for, you know, for using deep packet inspection to to kind of get at, uh, you know, what kind of emails the Ethiopians are sending, they ban Skype, and so on. So I think this is going to be, you know, this is slowly going to emerge as a bigger controversy in Africa, maybe rather than the, the issue of, of African governments being spied on from outside.
0: Yeah, and to that point as well, both Cisco and Nokia and Ericsson have also been associated with that kind of technology, that deep packet inspection and that monitoring of technology. Uh, listen, thank you so much, Reed, uh, Reed Hunt, for joining us today and kind of sharing your points of view and your perspective. Uh, really appreciate it and in your insights on on Huawei and the U.S. political process. My pleasure, totally. Thank you. And then uh, for our listeners, I, I want to give a recommendation to uh, the Seneca podcast. And we usually don't recommend other podcasts that often. But Seneca really is the kind of preeminent China-related podcast. And on August 31st of this year, they did a full hour on the Huawei Enigma with, uh, with David Wolf, Kaiser Guo, uh, Jeremy Goldkorn. And these are some of the top guys on Understanding China. And they talked to spend an hour dissecting Huawei. It's a very important issue, as Kobus talked about, for our listeners in Africa, particularly in North Africa and in Egypt and in Ethiopia today. So we encourage you to take a listen to that and to kind of follow this, this subject because it may seem a little bit archaic and it may seem a little bit arcane and technical. But at the end of the day, this is really, as Reed Hunt pointed out, the nuts and bolts that kind of connects our society together. So really encourage it. So uh, Anne, tell us a little bit very quickly before we go where people can follow us on Facebook and how our community's doing.
1: They can follow us at facebook.com slash China Africa project and we are posting uh, multiple times a day on the top news um, in China's engagement in Africa Um, and we have 17,000 followers most of you all are from uh, Africa from North Africa Um, I think most of our followers come from egypt and algeria and also india um, and around the world so it's a great place to engage and discuss on these sorts of topics and i hope that you will follow us
0: welcome to all of our new followers and if people want to follow you on twitter uh, where can they find you
1: i'm at Anshur07 A N N E n e s h e r zero seven
0: and Cobus, if people want to follow you on twitter where can they find you
3: I'm at Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E.
0: Excellent. And I'm at Eolander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting on the top China-Africa related issues pretty much every day. And of course, you can follow our podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, and on Facebook. And we hope that you'll leave your comments anywhere you listen to the show. And we'll be back again next Sunday for another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, thanks for listening.